Welcome to this podcast from the Lung Cancer Sessions on VJ Oncology. In this episode, we hear from four leading experts in lung cancer as they discuss the latest advances in EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. Here's Ross Kamage from the University of Colorado to start us off. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lung Cancer Sessions of VJ Oncology. And I am delighted to have three friends with me here today. Alex Spira from Virginia Cancer Specialists. Say hi, Alex. Hi, everyone. Okay, Rosario Garcia Campello from the University Hospital in Icaruña, Spain. Say hi, hi Rosario. Hi. And Natasha Leal from Princess Margaret in Toronto. Hey, Natasha. Hi. Hi there. <laughs> so we are talking today about uh, the field of EGFR mutation positive. And the reason we're talking about it is even though we've known about these things for nearly 20 years, the field has been changing. So if I say EGFR mutation positive, Alex, you know, what does that mean to you in your, in your clinic these days? So it's, you know, a couple of years ago, it used to be exon 19, exon 21. It was easy. Now it's, as I like to say, it's complicated. There's a lot more to think about. You got exon 20 insertions, you have exon 18s, and then you have resistance ones coming up for clinical studies. So it's something you really have to think about and know the answer to. And sometimes we don't get a lot of guidance by those uh, next gen sequencing assays that they just say exon 20 mutation and say, Ross, figure it out. You go yeah, from there. Maybe. So it's yeah. complicated. I mean, do you have a structure in your head as to how you, you, you group them? I do. So the way I think about it is what are the classic ones, right? Most patients with an EGFR mutation have what we would call the classic one, exon 19, exon 21, right? And those are the ones we typically think about osimertinib. Then I kind of look at it into two others uh, right now. I think of the exon 20 insertions. So those are where we now have new drugs, at least in the United States, approved both mobocertinib and emivantamab. And then I think of these atypical ones, things like Exxon 19 or G719X, where we have some data for fatinib, some data for osimertinib, uh, and we're not quite sure what to do with as well. So I kind of lump it into those three things. And then I have a separate category for secondary resistance mutations. For those of us old enough, <clears throat> back in the day, we used to think of EGFR mutations and then T790M, and we went from erlotinib to osimertinib. Now, at least in most parts of the world, we start everybody in osimertinib, so we're seeing less T790M, but we're seeing the development of new drugs that may even lead us to new clinical trials, such as C797S and others. Those are rare, so I kind of put that in my fourth category. Okay, so the others, I mean, do you have a different grouping or the same grouping? Do you use the same nomenclature? You know, he said atypical. I've heard other people call these things uncommon. Let's start with Rosario. Uh, hi. Uh, we usually talk about uncommon mutations, and we have the, the, basically the same picture. We talk about the uh, sensitive mutations, exon 19, exon 21, and then we figure out the, the other group of, of uh, alterations. It's true that the, the next generation sequencing approach, the new techniques, uh, had allowed us to increase the detection rate of these uncommon mutations, and we are still uh, facing how to deal in our daily clinical practice with some specific uh, rare mutations. So I think we need, in some cases, we need more data and also we need more uh, specific drugs. Uh, I guess we are talking about, about the new approaches for all these new alterations. Yeah, I mean, I, in, in my mind, I kind of, so I tend to use the common mutations as the classical ones. Un, uncommon is the term I, I'm tending to use rather than atypical. Um, and that, that was informed by a discussion with, with Dan Costa, who kind of beat me over the head and said, these things signal in the same way. They're just uncommon. They're not atypical. 
Uh, and then the X120s, I think, fall into a different category. So, Natasha, in Canada, this is a question about testing. Do you think the testing always picks all of these things up? So, you know, testing is a moving field, especially in, you know, managed care systems like, you know, Canada, Australia and the UK. Um, so and, and also Spain. So when you're using NGS, you know, we know for all of these, the sensitivity is better. You're able to find more common sensitizing mutations, more uncommon sensitizing mutations. And of course, probably double the number of X120 insertion mutations. Um, so NGS is, you know, our preferred way, um, you know, especially when you're limited by tissue or time. Sometimes you'll have to use a PCR assay or a, you know, a liquid biopsy or a DDPCR assay. But whenever possible, you know, NGS leads to the greatest sensitivity or pickup rate for all of these. And, and you know, in particular, doubles the number of exon 20 insertion mutations that you can find. Yeah, one of the things that, and Alex and I have talked about this before, and he kind of hinted at it, is when you get these next generation sequencing reports, you know, can, can the average guy reading it, you know, know that it's an exon 20 insertion? I mean, one of the things I, I sometimes see is there's a specific exon 20 insertion, which is a duplication, and you get this list of code numbers, and it just says DUP in the middle of it. So I, I don't know. Does your reports, I mean, how much are they digested when they come to you, Natasha? So uh, you bring up such a great point, you know, that the classic sort of HV. HGBS nomenclature is impossible for clinicians to understand. You know, even a KRAS G12C mutation doesn't look like KRAS G12C. And so I think it's so important with reporting that people get together locally and really make sure that the lab that you use is also using um, some of the, um, you know, um, I don't want to say um, colloquial nomenclature, but things that clinicians understand. Dumb-dumb nomenclature. Right. So, so T790M, for example, you know, you call it T790M. Uh, exon 20 insertion mutation um, and then uh, and then also sensitizing you know so the other day I got a, an email from a colleague uh, and she said you know she said I don't really understand what this mutation is or whether I should treat with it and it was actually an exon 19 deletion so so important to have that last piece of translation that annotation part that says you know this is sensitizing to a TKI or this is resistant, or there's this new class of drugs. And so in my clinic, you know, when the report doesn't make sense, we go to OncoKB or, you know, ClinVar. Um, you know, there are a lot of, lot of different websites you can go to, or we just call the lab. Um, but yeah, I, I agree that kind of translating it uh, into clinical speak is so important. You know, it's interesting because there's that move, um, I can't remember, you know, kind of plain speaking for sort of communicating to patients. You know, and, and yet, you know, we don't have this in these molecular reports. I think, I think there's a gap in the market there. Fully um, agree. I think, I, I think we need to understand the test we are using and also how the report is done. And fully agree, we need to use a, a common language, a, a common nomenclature here, because as Natasha said, uh, many times we have some problems to uh, understand uh, the reports we are reading. So I uh, fully agree with, with uh, your thoughts. The reports are terrible. I mean, I'll just be, I'll, I'll be blunt because they don't really, they, you know, especially in the United States, we use a couple of the commercial NGSSs, at least here. And sometimes they're vague. Sometimes they tell you things. Sometimes they, you know, are mistaken. I mean, I've seen many with just mistakes. Uh, they've gotten better over the last couple of years. You know, a couple of years ago, they would have EGFR mutation, Exxon 20, and talk about osimertinib, which we know doesn't really work very well, but yet it's on there. So they're, and they need to be simpler, right? I mean, those of us on this call are thoracic oncologists, and I hope, I hope we know more than a lot of the other oncologists, but if you're an oncologist seeing a few patients a year, 
it's really hard to digest it. I mean, what do you do? Go to up to date? No, you really want it out there. Two sentences. This is a drug I want and then learn it. I mean, I would love to tell you that it should be that easy, but oncology has become very complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we're having this uh, meeting today. But it would be helpful if we're just clear and to the point which drugs work, which lines of therapy are there and just end the discussion. But it's far, it's far more complicated on these reports than it needs to be. Yeah, one of the things, you know, if we take the NCCN as as one example, you know, it has a tendency to be this broad church, which lists all possible options. And then they hit on the idea that they would list preferred, but then they list five things as preferred. And you go, you know, you're a bunch of experts. Give us an opinion, you know. <laughs> Let's, let's, but let's talk about that. So we're moving from you've done the test, you get this result. You know, what are you going to treat these people with? Maybe we can try and start to use amongst these structures that we've got, you know, the structures of grouping these mutations, what you would start with. And let's start, Rosario. So how would, how would yeah. you choose what you're going to treat these people with? Okay, so uh, in case we usually try to include all these patients in clinical trials. Uh, in case we cannot include those patients, our standard of care in uh, common and sensitizing mutation is osimertinib, I guess, as in basically the vast majority of the countries. And for uh, those uh, and common mutations, uh, we try to figure out the, 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 the sensitivity to uh, afatinib or osimertinib. This is basically what we use in these uncommon uh, mutations. And then we have have the group of exon 20 insertions. Uh, in first line setting, we try to treat these patients in clinical trials since we have the opportunity to offer a targeted agent. Uh, and in case we can't, uh, platinum based chemotherapy is our preferred first line option. We can discuss, I guess, the role of chemo plus immuno in this setting. But to tell you the truth, uh, this is something that we usually don't do in our daily clinical practice. The rest of you. Well, you know, well, let me get to that in just a second. So let me just push you one thing. So you said for the uncommon mutations, you said osimertinib or a fat neck. Which? Yeah. Which do you do and why? Well, uh, the, the vast majority of evidence we have is with afatinib, but the truth is that talking about toxicity, if you balance uh, the, the evidence that is not so extensive and the toxicity, I usually prefer to use uh, osimertinib to tell you the truth, uh, because in that balance, uh, this is my preferred option. Yeah, I mean, if I and I don't know what it is by the EMA, I think. Afatinib is the only one that actually has a license that specifies the uncommon mutation. But yeah, I think in, in, in my practice, I would probably tend to use osimertinib as my first line choice for tolerability. You, you know, Ross, you know, Places like Canada, sorry, you know, we are limited to what's approved. So for us, it's a fat nib, but, but I certainly agree, you know, both with Ross and, and Rosario that, um, you know, it, it would be great to have a less toxic TKI. And there have been some nice data. I know James Yang presented some nice data recently suggesting that OC, you know, has very good activity as well. So I, I'd love to see a, a drug approval in it with that drug as well. Yeah, have, you seen the, have you seen the data on Naratinib and G719X? I mean, that's also interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, it's very, it looks very promising. You know, I think um, Alicia published some data first line, actually, with great response rates uh, some time ago. Um, I think it was like 75% or three or four patients responded. And then in the pre-treated setting, um, uh, I think Jonathan Reese presented some nice data. Uh, sorry, Jonathan Goldsmith presented some nice uh, data looking at pre-treated patients. I think the response rate was about 40%. So, you know, it looks great. Um 
one of the challenges uh, with some of these drugs, of course, with neurotin, of course, is the diarrhea, right? You need prophylactic right. antidiarrheals. And so, uh, you know, there, there are some ongoing studies with that, um, certainly very promising and, you know, potentially more promising than subsequent chemo. Um, but toxicity remains a challenge, you know, just so a drug like osimertinib or something more specific um, remains very attractive. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned both the neuratinib and your question, Ross, what to do with an exon 18. And it's pretty impressive. I mean, most of us as oncologists, especially thoracic oncologists, can tell you what we would do for anybody with an exon 21 or a 19. But if you ask 50 thoracic oncologists, what would you do for an exon 18? Half would give a fatinib because it's on the label for the atypical I'm sorry, uncommon. I apologize for the uncommon mutations, <laughs> including that. But there are other half that would give osimertinib. And I'm in your camp. I mean, afatinib is a tough drug. I mean, it is something that is not that easy to give. And I've given neratinib as part of a clinical study, and that's even harder. And it just points to the lack of data and lack of consistency as well for something that should be so simple, right? I mean, it should be like, you have an Exxon 18 or G7 Titan X, what do 100 medical oncologists give? And it's not that easy an answer. It's funny because you say neratinib is harder. I actually think diarrhea is easier to manage than the skin side effects. It's like a fat that hits your skin and neratinib gives you diarrhea because, I mean, I guess it's a personal choice. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I think, you know, you look, you look the same and you take Imodium and, you know. Which, which grade three, four toxicity would you rather have? I know, which, one do you, which would you rather have? I get that. So let's go back to Rosario's thing. So there was this kind of retro move a few years ago uh, about the the value of adding in chemotherapy to your first line uh egfr tki and and the studies were mostly done with i think fitnip um there was an, a, a japanese study and an mm -hmm. indian study uh, uh you know it's it's interesting it seemed to produce a slightly higher response rate slightly longer progression free survival and and surprisingly longer overall survival i think it's being explored in bigger studies in the in the west but is anyone doing it outside of a study not in my case to no. tell you the truth, no. And again, uh, I, I am looking for the final results for these studies, but the balance, efficacy, toxicity, I think we need to take that into account uh, when we, we have to, to do this decision, but not in my, in my practice today. Yeah, I mean, even if there was a PFS advantage, you'd still say, well, couldn't I just give the chemotherapy later? I mean, if there's an overall survival advantage, you always got to say, is this just, you know, access to it in some of the places where they've done the trial when they do, I think the study's Flora 2. Does that sound about right? Yeah, Flora 2. Are you, are you guys uh, enrolling to that one? Not. Natasha's nodding. Yeah, so so we are. Um, it's, it's certainly not a strategy we use uh, off-label or, or outside of the trial. You know, I think accrual's almost done. Um you know, even more than that study, the study that I love is that one designed by Helena Yu, where you get um, a month of osimertinib. They do a plasma CTDNA assay. If if it's if it's fallen, you you know you stay on OC, you come off the trial. But if it hasn't fallen, um, you get randomized to add chemo or continue. And and so I, you know I love a study like that because that really speaks to me as a clinician, right? If the OC is not working, those are the people you want to pull out for an intensified approach. And uh, I apologize for the background emergency noise over here. <laughs> <laughs> it's the real world, you know. Yeah, um, absolutely. At least, we, at least we know there's a doctor on site. <laughs> it might be a fire truck. That's the problem. Um, so, well, let me let me ask one other. So, we've we've kind of touched on it. So, with the you know, we talked about a fanib, we talked about Narandam, we talked about Osimertinib for the EGFR exon twenty insertions. 
you know, we have these new drugs. Alex suggests that we have amavantamab and now we have mobocertinib in the, in the U.S. But the efficacy doesn't blow it out of the water. The response rate is running, you know, high 20s, you know, high 30% response rate. Is, is that enough that if you had access to those drugs, you would give that to someone first line? Or is it, you know, so much more palatable than chemotherapy that you just try it and see? I mean... So I, I think, uh, and we can all take turns, obviously. You know, I think number one is the labels in second line, which makes it an easy discussion. Certainly, Natasha said, you know, in Canada, they're guided by label, which means you probably can't use it in second line, which makes it an easy decision. I don't know what it's like for Rosario. Here, I, I usually, for something like that, I try and hold on the FDA guidelines, which means I do give people first, first although we do, as I'm sure many of us do, have a clinical study. Uh, you know, those are, you know, if you've given the drugs and, you know, they're relatively rare indications, they're not, you know, the toxicity is probably not substantially better than chemo. Uh, if you really look at it, you do have the rash, you do have the diarrhea. I don't know which one you'd rather have, Ross, uh, but they both have toxicity. <laughs> they both have toxicity that is real. And so in my mind, I'm currently following just giving people chemotherapy first if they're not going to enroll on a clinical study. Uh, the response rates are less, I mean, depending on how you look between 28 and 40% on the two studies, depending on which cohort and you're looking at central or investigative review, which is less than carbopem plus or minus pembro in the frontline setting. So, you know, granted that's second and third line and beyond, so you'd expect that. Uh, I will say my only comment is everybody was a little disappointed because we're so used to RET and MET and EGFR response rates that are like 80%. People go, oh, this is not that good. I mean, considering you had nothing in the second line setting, I think it's great. We need to take a little step back, but I think there is room for improvement there. And I give people chemo. So let me ask you that. So you kind of you kind of dodged the issue a little bit. So do you give them chemo or chemo IO knowing that they have an exon 20? Oh, interesting yeah. question. So I give people I'll just I'll, I'll get out there first. You can differentiate me. I just give people chemo. I am a firm believer in that, you know, with a targetable mutation, there is little data that a drug like immunotherapy improves outcomes based upon a mechanism of action. Um, so I just give people carboplatin, pemetrexid without it. I'm also a little concerned about Luminitis afterwards, although that, that didn't really bear out in some of the mobile certain of data. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I'm, and I know, in fact, I was I had a second opinion patient the other day, and they very rightfully said they were going to give carbopem pembro in this line setting, and I couldn't disagree with them. But I'm sure we're all a little bit different on that. So Natasha, if you if you have to go by the letter of the law in Canada, do you have to give carbopem pembro? No. So the good thing is you, you don't have to give anything expensive that you don't want to in Canada. Thank you. I agree completely with Alex. You know, I think it's so important that, you know, you focus on chemotherapy. I think checkpoint inhibitors really don't work as well in this population. Um, you know, I have to laugh because we actually published a series where we had six patients with exon 20 insertions and three of them responded to single agent checkpoint inhibitors. But I think, you know, when you put that in the mix of all the other studies out there, response rates much lower. Um, I, I agree with chemo first in Europe and, you know, uh, Charo, you can, you can tell us what, what you do in Spain, but, you know, I know some people use chemotherapy plus bevacizumab, um, but, you know, certainly in Canada, it would be chemotherapy first and then these new treatments. And, and when you look at the trials moving to first line, you know, the M of strategy is to add to chemo and the mobocertinib strategy is, 
either or. And, you know, when you sort of think about it, like if you're just as good, um, you would probably, um, you would probably um, use MOBO first line if, if that study were sort of similar or equivalent. And similarly, if the MVANTMAP plus chemo study showed that one is clearly better, um, you know, you would use that. But, but I, I still, I love the idea of a targeted first um, paradigm. I just, I just don't know if we're going to get there in Exxon 20 insertions. All right. So Rosario, let me, you can address both what you would do in Europe in terms of chemo. Yeah. Yeah. But, we, I, we I also, but I also want you to address, you know, predicting in the future, the Moby versus chemo or chemo plus or minus AMI, which one are you going to put your money on? <laughs> Uh, okay, let me just read the future. You want me to read yeah, the future? Yeah, yeah, that's what I want, yeah. That's nice. Uh, it's always easy to talk about the future. <laughs> uh, uh, today, today, uh, looking at the data we have in previously treated population, I guess that the combination approach is going to be more effective. I am taking part in both trials, and I guess, that's just a guess, that the combination approach has more sense. So this is my lecture to the future. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, don't. I mean, don't. I mean, let's be honest here. You know, don't you think that a drug with a twenty-eight percent response rate going head to head against first-line chemo doesn't sound like a really smart idea? Yeah, I think we need to raise the bar. Okay, we are talking about personalized approach, uh, yeah. and we are talking about first-line setting. So uh, let's not be happy with this thirty percent response rate, and we uh, are missing also some details regarding brain efficacy. We know that these patients have brain meds, have the risk of developing developing uh, brain meds. So I think uh, today, with the information I have, I prefer the the, the combination strategy approach. Yeah. And then just to, just to tidy up the, the other question. So if you're starting with chemo in the real world here, do you give chemo or chemo IO? Okay. In our country, basically the vast majority of us, we are doing conventional platinum-based chemotherapy, usually pemetrocet-based chemotherapy. And we have this discussion sometimes regarding if clinical factors like smoking habits can influence the decision of adding immuno or not. In my practice, I usually skip the, the immuno. I just do conventional chemotherapy. But we have this discussion, to tell you the truth. Uh, 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 the, the colleagues in the country, sometimes we people think that uh, chemoimmuno can be an option for this patient. I, I don't truly believe that we have enough data to support this decision. So let's. I'm going to pick up on one of the other things you said. So you mentioned brain efficacy. So either if we have these clinical trials where these are going, moving into the first line or the patient has developed new brain capacities when you're coming to them in the second line. My understanding is neither of the two licensed drugs, AMI or MOBI, really has that much activity in the brain. So how, how comfortable are you about either trying it? And then at the same question, are you comfortable trying it when we're talking about some of the more common mutations and we're using osimertinib or something? So Alex, okay. do you want to jump on that? Oh, well, let, let me do Alex on one. No, 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 Alex, go. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. So how comfortable I am? So that is my biggest concern. So the brain is my biggest concern. And having participated in the studies, I uh, will tell you that that's where all my patients had trouble ultimately. So it's a problem. And we've also gotten very used to the fact that targeted therapies, by and large, do get into the brain very well. So I think this is a little bit of a kick in the you-know-what because we were all kind of hoping and expecting these small molecules. But again, harkens back to the day of erlotinib, which didn't really have much CNS penetration uh, as well. So I still use the drugs. I try and come up with alternative approaches like SRS, 
uh, crossing my fingers and taking my head in the sand and hoping the brain mats don't grow very much or other things um, during that time. But it's a tough situation, especially in the second line scenario as well with no easy answer. So if, if I had new brain metastases uh, with an EGFR exon 20 insertion and I, and I was you know, eligible for one of these drugs because of line of therapy or trial, would you require me to have the brain metastases treated before you went on or would you just watch them closely? I just watch them closely because, I mean, if you're really looking for the, you know, outside of a clinical trial setting, if you're looking at the second line scenario, I don't think we have much of a better option, right? I mean, typically looking at either docetaxel, assuming they got the usual drugs first, um, without a lot of drugs with CNS penetration. So I would do a little bit of watchful waiting, crossing my fingers and just close monitoring um, for those patients. I admit it's not an easy solution to that. Would anyone do anything different? I mean, I mean, I guess the only thing I'd add, I mean, I, I agree with Alex and I, I think, you know, that's not a decision as, as medical oncologists that we make by ourselves, right? Like you want to get input from the multidisciplinary team, you want to know how big it is, how many, um, you know, whether it's in an eloquent area. And so, but, but I, you know, once you get that sign off, I agree, you know, I'm really interested in, in the data from the newer compounds, the Cullen compound, the DZD, you know, these have some CNS activity. And I think, you know, what I want to see even more is sort of activity in sequencing, right? So we know that certain could be quite active in TKI pre treated patients. Alex, you actually had a really nice presentation at World Long on that. Um, but, you know, what about activity after amivantamab or, or vice versa? How are we yeah. going to sequence these? And then, then I think it's going to be how do we pick the best TKI as part of that treatment journey? And then we kind of have to figure out sequence. Yeah. And again, just my, Ross, I will tell you is, you know, if a patient had one or two brain mets, I probably would do SRS. But I think yeah. I was operating on the assumption that it was, you know, multiple brain mets, not really a candidate and, and thinking about whole brain or something uh, yeah. like that. But I echo, I mean, I was a little enticed by some of the newer data for the DZD drug, which says it may have a little bit of CNS penetration, although it's super early on. But again, a little bit uh, unclear. And I think even posiotomy maybe even had a little bit of brain data, but uh, which is a little enticing as well, getting back to a little bit more toxic TKIs as well. But again, you know, so many of these patients are outside of clinical study and many clinical studies are a little bit reluctant to put these patients on right now because you want to show their systemic activity first. Well, I, I, would, I would take exception to the fact that we've got that much CNS data even on these new drugs. So what they've tended to show is preclinical data and you go, that's, that's great, you know, so far so good. But almost all of the studies have said you either have to have absent or treated brain metastases to get in and showing, you know, our PFS is the same if you do or don't have baseline brain metastases tells you absolutely nothing until you have untreated measurable brain metastases in these studies. And, and none of them have presented that data as yet that I'm aware of. Yeah, I think I think there are a couple of sort of anecdotes, but but I agree with you, Ross. Like that's the the key thing, right? None of this PFS with or without, you have to show the actual intracranial activity, and that kind of speaks to all the great work you've done looking at Rano and different criteria. I, I think there are a few reports now. What strikes me as so interesting is you would expect that high dose osimertinib, 160 milligrams, would we'd already have reports of CNS activity, and yet both of the studies that have been reported don't don't make any mention of that. So I don't know if it's that you know we didn't have the right patients or um, they haven't looked at that yet, um, but but I was actually kind of disappointed. I, I really had high hopes for high dose osimertinib and exon twenty insertions, um, but between sort of the U.S. study and the recent Dutch study, you know that PFS I think or that duration of response is quite short, um, and I, th I think is different from from the currently approved agents. Yeah, I mean the high dose osimertinib. Again, sometimes you know in the real world we do things because we only have certain tools in the toolbox. 
you know, if you think about it, osimertinib as a, as a primarily EGFR wild-type sparing agent is the one that's least likely to work on exon 20 because the structure of the kinases are so similar. So I think, you know, if you're trapped on a desert island and you only have osimertinib, you try it. I don't know. I put a lot of faith in it. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think what we've, what we've touched on is that the brain is going to be this incredibly important battleground for these new drugs to really, you know, differentiate themselves. Rosario, I, I did you have something to add on this? The other one I wanted to say, because I wanted to complete this, is for if you had an EGFR common mutation or an uncommon mutation, would you would you trust the osimertinib to work in the brain? Okay, I think I am fully agree. I think that the brain issue here is uh, a key element for decision in the near future, uh, going to differentiate those new agents that we have on the ground. And regarding the role of uh, common mutations, um, I have many labs with this exome 20 insertions and the role of local therapies. With osimertinib, I really trust the, the efficacy of the drug at the brain level. And usually, it's my first option uh, if I cannot do SRS, uh, I try to avoid uh, whole brain radiotherapy and use OSI first. Um, I think you can trust the, this, the potency of the agent at the, the brain level. I have less experience with uncommon mutation on brain, but I, I, given the fact that the data is not so uh, abundant, I would say that I would, I, I would do the same. If you had just one lesion in the brain and it was a common yeah. mutation, would you give SRS or you would just try the drug? That's a great question, Ross. Uh, I, 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 <laughs> okay. <laughs> what I do is uh, I, I do SRS and then uh, osimertinib, yes. So, so isn't so that so, a trial? Yeah. Oh, sorry, Ross. Yeah. We have a trial. Actually, Ross, you know Cheryl Ho quite well, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Cheryl's got this trial where if we have patients with brain mets and common sensitizing mutations, we randomize. They either get the SRS up front and go on OC or they just start with OC. Um, so, you know, we're hoping, I mean, obviously it's a small trial, but we're hoping to get a signal. Um, yeah. but I agree with Charo, you know, that, that the retrospective data looks so good. You kind of wonder, um, yeah. but the, the, um, the clinician in me, the medical oncologist in me always tries drug first <laughs> whenever I can get away with it. Um, yeah. even, even the uncommon. In Cheryl's study, when do they rescan for the people who are just trying the drug? I believe, so I'll have to double check, but I believe the MRs are between six and eight. So you don't do an, well, we may, we may have just lost Natasha, but one of the big debates is if you're trying a drug to work in the brain, should you do an earlier brain scan than you would normally do just in case, like at three weeks or something? You know, Ross, just one comment, I think this is kudos to you, is that, you know, we, so many of these studies don't allow these two or five or even one centimeter brain mets from enrolling on studies. And then what ends up happening is you do a study, you show that it works, and then you wonder about the next year, do you have CNS activity? I mean, you're published in the ALK world, all the CNS activity, which was done early on. And I think now that should be an expectation of any, any clinical study. You know, we should be looking at this earlier on. So we're not asking the question three years or four years later, what is the real activity? And you're going by the anecdotal report from Colorado, from Memorial, from uh, Princess Margaret saying, I had these patients. We need to be getting these questions and data much earlier on in the studies. And kudos, you know, most certain of the clinical study it had, if you've seen the slides, has like 10 different cohorts. And many of them asked that question very early on. It was a negative study or negative data, but it's super helpful because it helps you figure out how to help manage these patients rather than us just all kind of asking each other, hey, do you have any brain mets that work? Yeah. And also, it also helped. I mean, so 
But adding that CNS cohort into the Mobrasertinib study was also designed to say the company can then figure out the safest way to develop their drug early on because CNS was obviously an overt liability. You know, they could then address that in future in future studies. I've got one other thing. Since we were talking about brain, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a side move here. What about bone metastases? So a lot of each of our mutants across these things have bone metastases. Do you give bone strengthening agents? Or do you rely on the TKI, or does it depend on the EGFR mutation you're talking about? Rosario, I'm going to throw this one yeah. to you. I usually rely on the EGFR TKI I'm using. Overall, when we talk about EGFR common mutation, this is my practice. What would you do with an exon 20, though? Oh, again, uh, tough question. Uh, since it's not, uh, the agents we have so far are not so active. I think uh, I, I, I try to combine both. Yeah, me, me, I'd probably be the same. Alex, what do you do? Uh, I, for the bone mets, I, I kind of look at the burden of disease and kind of see how much they're going on. I mean, I've also, you know, it only takes one case of osteonecrosis of the jaw with bisphosphonates and you go, oh shoot, did the patient really need that lesion? Yeah. So I go more by the burden of disease and risk per fracture because these patients do respond very well. Yeah, I would say for the common mutations and even maybe just for the uncommon ones, I probably only use the bisphosphonates or the, the exgebas of this world if they're progressing in the bone on the TKI and I can't control it in other ways. Um, you know, because I've seen one case of osteonecrosis of the jaw and that was one too many. Yeah, and you know, as I said, you know, for most of the response so long the bone heals up, you're kind of like, did I really need to do it for that yeah. one particular lesion? And you're right, that one ONJ is just tough. Let me, uh, we are doing great, by the way. Um, what, one question I want to ask is, you put people on these targeted therapies. And again, we've got our three categories, common, uncommon, and X on, on 20. And then they initially respond and then they progress, let's say within the body. Do you re-biopsy? And if you do, what are you tested for? Should I start? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Okay. Uh, usually we try to re-biopsy to get a re-biopsy. Uh, it's not always easy. Um, different reasons, as you already know, but this is what we try to do. And we try to look for different resistance mechanisms. We have different trials. We try to put these patients on the trials according to resistance mechanisms. Um, in case we don't have any trial or the patient doesn't switch any trial, uh, we, we offer those patients conventional chemo, but we try to do re-biopsy. Uh, first, because most of the trials require uh, yeah. this re-biopsy. Um, uh, in case we cannot get the tumor tissue, we usually do a liquid biopsy. Yeah. yeah. If you get a tissue biopsy, what do you what do you test it for? Do you just do next generation sequencing? Do you we do, do, we yeah. do next generation and, and hoping hoping to find any. Uh, resistance mechanism we can target, yeah. I mean, my, my understanding is, you know, for example, like progression on osimertinib with the common ones, you, you, we, we in Colorado used to talk about doing a kind of resistance panel, and then we rejected that because essentially you have to look for everything because you can get an ALK yeah. or a an ALK or red or whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Alex, what do you do? I mean, you're in, you're in the community. So I, I always laugh. So I do a lot more biopsies at tumor board than I do in real life. Number one, right? You know, I, and actually, I think uh, 
uh, we just lost Natasha, but I, I use that exact same line. We just did another one of these recently. So I, often, you know, I try and find clinical trials for these patients, and most of the clinical trials are agnostic. You know, we have some. Yeah, I'll give you. You know, we have imivantamab in combination with lazertan, and they'll look at all types. So we get that as part of the clinical study uh, as well. I actually end up doing a standard of care more liquid biopsies because. As you think about the real time here, you know, somebody comes in with progression, I try and propose them another option or a clinical study. And by the time you get some of that, you know, by the time you get a biopsy, you get the NGS panel back, it's a month, right? I mean, getting yeah. a biopsy at least here is another week or two to get scheduled and then they get an NGS assay. So the liquid biopsy comes back pretty soon. And I admit it's not perfect, but it often provides you almost as much information right now. So in general, I'm doing that, but they're getting their seat, their, uh, tumor biopsy, hopefully as part of a clinical study, and we're using them both together. That was a that was a lawyer answer where I dodged the question a little bit. Yeah, it, was, it was absolutely no details in there whatsoever. So, um, so one of the things I was astonished by was that the NCCN guidelines have no mention about rebiopsy of progression. The only mention about rebiopsy across any of the molecular drivers is if you started, if you had a common mutation, you started on a lot, and then you have to see if you got T790F. And it's like, Dude, we are in, you know, in 2021. Why are you, why is it not in there? But I think, Ross, I mean, the reality is, is that if you look at what's the standard of care, the standard of care is chemo at that point. I mean, clinical trial is the standard of care, but there's, I don't think there's anything on NCCN guidelines right now, correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, you should give if you have a specific mutation right now. I mean, we all agree we should find something and find a clinical study or do something that's out of the box, right? I mean, we, we as thoracic oncologists agree with that, but the reason it's not on there, I don't think there's anything truly actionable with an approved drug, right? That's the thing. Fully agree, uh, but uh, I think that the message we, ha we have to send to the community, to the, the, the young people who is starting here, is that we should try to, to get this molecular information and try to get a clinical trial. I know that this is not a standard of care. I understand that pretty well, but I think that the message here is go for that probiosi. Uh, I, I fully agree with Alex. Time sometimes we, we cannot wait for this biopsy for the results, but if you can do it, I think that the message should be do it. Yeah, the, I mean the the strategy I have is so I, I get the you know there's there's no drug rep out there telling you that you have to find med amplification and add in a med inhibitor. That's not a licensed indication. But again, if it was your mom or your dad, then you would want to know this. So even so, you could go find the right trial. Absolutely, fully agree. I agree too. And I think in Canada, how we get away with at least three biopsy part, sorry, I'm back from the, the, uh, the no communication zone, um, is, uh, is to rule out small cell transformation, right? And then, and then if we have the ability to do NGS, we go from there. But, but I completely agree with you, Ross, um, that, you know, streaming patients towards, because now there are all these different options, right? There's C797S directed trials, MET directed trials, sort of emergent fusion directed trials. And then of course, everybody else with these great antibody drug conjugates. So, so I, agree i think it's such an important thing to offer patients um and uh, and you know clinically we get away by saying oh yeah we have to rule out small cell transformation or or squamous squamous transformation so in the last minute or so that we've got since you mentioned trials i'm gonna i'm gonna give you enough rope to hang yourself with so of all of the trials going on in the egfr mutant space tell me one that you think you're really excited about and one that you think you wouldn't put a patient on because it's a stupid idea. 
So I like the petritimab, the HER3 study, only because it's demonstrated some promising data, right? I mean, it's already got some impressive response rates that's been published. So I like that. Um, so that's the ADC, just ex expand that's that. Right, that's the, that's, thank you. That's the ADC against HER3. So it's a little bit of change in concept, right? It has to do with the dimerization of EGFR with the different compounds. So you have to think about it conceptually differently than what we're used to, right? You think about EGFR, you just think about EGFR. But what I like about it is that they've already shown some very promising data, and that study will hopefully be accrued within the next few months. So to me, that's the most exciting one that's out there. I'm glad I got to go first because uh, that was the oh, easy. Well, you're not off the hook yet, Alex. Tell me one trial that if I offered it to your center, you would turn it down. Uh, I'll pass for now, but I'll... Oh, come <laughs> on. Like you don't want to burn any bridges? An immunotherapy study in Egypt for immune lung cancer. Are you excited about that? So I am, so that's a great, thank you, Ross. So I am very much anti-immunotherapy. Uh, I, I firmly believe that uh, just because I, I, you know, the scientific doesn't make about sense of it, but I'm always brought back to the Empower 150 data, which we're not going to talk about today, which shows that when you combine bevacizumab and immunotherapy, it probably does work a little bit with a taxing-based therapy. And I struggle with that mentally all the time. So, and I don't, and I actually don't use it because I still struggle with that scientifically as to why. I also struggle with the rationale of edge F inhibitors because conceptually, I just don't get it. Um, so I would turn an immunotherapy study down. Okay. Rosario. Thanks for the help. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, okay. Rosario. Yeah. Um, so talking about common mutations, I think the Mariposa trial can give us important information in the role explain, of... Explain what that one is. Okay, that one is uh, testing the role of osimertinib first-line setting. We already know the role. Uh, and the combination approach with a MIGFR tyrosinkinase inhibitor, third generation, and certainly plus amimantanab. I think that is a, a strategy that can, ha can have some specific role, and we have to see those patients with concomitant alterations. That is something we, we didn't reach today, but it's important. We know that this is a great heterogeneity in, when we talk about EGFR mutant population, and the new NGS technology has allowed us to, to see that this is not so simple as we thought at the very beginning. So I think that the combination of strategies may have a role, not for every single patient, but at least we have some, have some clue. Um, the trial, I wouldn't put any patient. You want me to say that? I do. Okay. Uh, I am not very excited for those trials who are combining uh, or introducing immuno in this scenario, to tell you the truth. Okay. All right. Natasha, ever the diplomat. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I agree with Rosario. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about these, um, you know, combination, either the bispecifics like amivantamab and lazertinib, also telecetuzumab, right, which is an ADC, but again, that sort of combined EGFR map targeting. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about those, especially that subgroup of patients. You know, there was that nice subgroup analysis that was presented at ASCO, looking at MET-IC positive tumors and how patients like nine out of 10 of them had a response. And so, you know, can we look at those data with some of these other other um, compounds and really sort of have a much more focused strategy of sort of who gets what. Um, the study that I guess I was most disappointed in, um, but but maybe it's it's not the fault of the drug. Uh, I think there was a, a study called Herthina, which was looking at patients with HER2 IHC positive tumors after osimertinib failure, and then I think they added um, uh, a, a 
uh, TDM1. Um, and so I, I was a bit disappointed in that. Now, you know, I think we could say we're all disappointed in TDM1 compared to, for example, Trust Who's Map directs to CAN. But, but in this EGFR space, um, you know, I was really disappointed uh, that, that it really didn't seem to have additional effect. And so was it that we didn't choose the right biomarker, right? We used IHC and not amplification. Maybe that was it. But that's the group where I'm sort of thinking, well, maybe I should put them on another on another study. Um, not as unenthusiastic about chemo IO as my two friends here, um, but I won't be surprised if those studies aren't strikingly positive either. Great. And uh, I guess I'll have to throw something in there too. So I think antibody drug conjugates are really interesting. I guess what I would be most excited about is them combining them together with the TKI with some concern about pneumonitis risk. But, you know, the whole idea about doing studies in oncogene addicted where you're taking away the TKI and jumping onto something else um, would fall into the category of studies that I'm actually not interested in. You know, ones that are not really addressing the underlying biology of the disease. And when they are doing that, especially if there's some kind of predictive biomarker, those are the ones I'm most excited about. Guys, I am going to wrap this up. This is possibly the most fun teleconference I've had for a long time. I hope we get to do it again. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have been great. Take care, everybody. Thanks. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then you can subscribe for more on your favourite podcast app, including Apple, Spotify, and Podbean. And why not check out the other lung cancer sessions over on vjoncology.com? Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology for the latest updates in oncology research and clinical practice, and find exclusive interviews with leading oncologists over on vjoncology.com.